The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Can we have a difficult, candid, open, honest discussion about racial tensions in America? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on what will be an exciting, action-filled Line of Fire broadcast to start the week today. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. This is Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution, serving to help you in your walk, in your calling, and your destiny in God to stand strong and be a world changer through the gospel. All right. We, we got a lot to talk about. No, I'm not going to talk about what happened with the Academy Awards and Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Not getting into that today. Sorry if you wanted to talk about that. I'm sure there are plenty of other places where you can talk about that. We will talk about President Biden's unfortunate remarks in Poland, where he outwardly said Putin needs to go. Unscripted comment. We'll, we'll talk about that. I've just been reinstated to my Twitter account after being locked out for 12 hours. You, you won't believe the tweet that got me locked out. I just found out literally one minute ago. We just got unlocked. That's how the timing worked out. So I just found out, did screenshots of everything. So I'll tell you that later. But we're going to have one of those difficult line of fire, candid family conversations. If you're brand new to the broadcast or a recent listener, please understand that many folks have been with me listening on the radio some daily for 13 years going on 14 years. So you build a relationship over this period of time. It's a give and take. I've learned a lot. Hopefully I've I've been able to share a lot as well, but I've learned a lot listening to callers and interacting and getting different perspectives. And they've helped sharpen uh, some of my own positions and deepen and clarify some of my own convictions as interact with others inside the body and on the outside. And if, again, if you're new, by all means, join in, but understand that there's, there's been a relationship built with many. Many read my articles daily. Some have followed our ministry for 20 or 30 or more years. So I'm speaking into this context, okay? Last week, I addressed some of the questioning of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson in the Supreme Court hearings. And I I went out of my way to say I would much, much rather have nine black and or Hispanic women on on the Supreme Court who held to what I believe is a right judicial philosophy as intended by our Constitution, as opposed to to nine leftist white males. wouldn't even have to think twice. There, There wouldn't be a split second of a debate in terms of what I would prefer. So I made that clear. Then I said, to me, it's an ideology issue. Can I, as a white male, raise an ideological issue about a statement made by, by, by Justice Jackson without me being accused of, of racism? So I don't always get to look at comments on YouTube or in other places where our show goes out. Uh, sometimes I do. And I noticed that some are weighing in saying, hey, look, I'm a black American and she should not serve. It's that simple. And then others saying, Dr. Brown, we all know you're not a racist. Why do you have to be so careful? Why appeal 
to the left? Why, why try to uh, uh, appeal to the woke left? Oh, I'm not. I'm not thinking about the woke left at all. I'm thinking about brothers and sisters in the Lord who do believe that this judge was disrespected in the hearings, who, who see it as because she was a black woman, she didn't get the same respect from the Republicans that a white male would have. That's how they genuinely see it and perceive it. And I want to be sensitive to that in addressing my issues. Well, that's crazy. Ah, we all have our perspectives and we all have our blind spots. And unless we acknowledge that, we'll never go further. Here, here, look, you have on both sides of the race debate in America, extremes that really don't care about winning others over that are in the middle. They, they want to preach to their choir. They want to preach in an echo chamber. So uh, I know there are white conservative commentators and they could care less about accusations of racism or this. That's like, I'm going to tell the truth, period. And, and maybe they are bringing valid uh, issues to the surface and, and raising major critiques that are serious. However, the way they're doing it will just sound to many others insensitive and missing the point and bigot. I'm just saying that's what it'll sound. Now, I've, I've read comments. I was, I was just looking online and saw comments from a, a black theologian. And what he said sounded outright racist to me. The way he was talking about white evangelicals sounded outright racist to me and judgmental. And it doesn't seem like he's trying to win someone in the middle. So we could be like ships passing in the night. We could easily do that. It's not hard to do that. We could have a conversation where we say, well, what's your perspective? Let me hear your perspective. Let me think about your perspective. Then let me share mine. So back in the, the days when the, the big, big story was George Zimmerman's killing of Trayvon Martin, and, and was it was it homicide? Was it justifiable self-defense? And we had endless conversations on the air about this. And we plunged in deep, really early on on the radio, when I was trying to weigh how much I wanted to talk about politics, because this was just different than preaching from the pulpit, how much I should be getting into those things. Uh, I, I made a comment one day about then-Senator Barack Obama, who was running against Hillary Clinton in the primaries for the Democratic nomination. And I made a statement about him. And a few days later, I got a caller from a, a, a black listener. And she said, why do you have to talk about race all the time? I said, what do you mean? She said, you're always bashing Obama. I said, actually, I, I just said something about him. I, I mentioned something I didn't like about John McCain the week before. And then I mentioned a bunch of black conservatives that I liked that I gladly vote for for president. But in her mind, I was, I was raising race all the time. She said, well, she was wrong. Oh, but okay. That's easy to just say, well, one's wrong, other's right. I want to know why that was her perception. In other words, what made her feel like that? One friend said to me, uh, African-American, listen, when you speak against Obama, we feel like you're speaking against our son. That uh, white Americans and Americans in general tend to have a, a much more independent uh, mindset meaning that we are just islands to ourselves. Yes, we have families and communities, but we're very, very independent. Many black Americans have, have what would be more of like an, an Old Testament feel of, of being more a community or tribal affiliation. That's why many Christians in Africa can relate to the Old Testament better than many Christians can in the West. So, for example, 
many black Americans, when, when, when they saw the video of George Floyd being killed, said that that feels like it's my son. So I understand that these hearings can, can be another major forward step to say, wow, this would be an incredible honor to have a black female on the Supreme Court. It's never been done. That would be wonderful. I'm saying, yeah, it would be wonderful and be reflective of our nation. Uh, but let's just make sure the ideologies are right. Let's just make sure the judicial philosophy is right. So I'm looking at it in a completely independent, separate way. Others are looking at it more in a community, communal way. And it's not that one way is right and the other way is wrong. It's just different ways of seeing things. So I was interacting with a friend of mine, a colleague who's a black educator, and he felt that, that Judge Jackson was deeply disrespected by the Republicans and completely mistreated. And I said, I don't think she was treated any differently or worse than the, the way the Democrats treated uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett. And there was a lot of their treatment I found despicable. In fact, this is what I expected, that each side is really going to come hard after the other side, that the judges, both those that Trump nominated and now the one that Biden nominated, they're going to do their best to avoid saying how they're really going to rule on things. There'll be a contentious vote, and then by party lines, the person will get in. That's kind of what I expect to happen, for better or for worse. So my question to you is, do you feel, from your perspective, that Judge Jackson was disrespected or mistreated, and it was because of the color of her skin? Or does that notion strike you as, as utterly bizarre? I'm not trying to set up a conflict. I am trying to bring things to the surface because after months of prayerful reflection during the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman trial and in the before it and the aftermath, I, I came up with a very, very simple postulate that whites often do not see racism when it is there. And blacks often see racism when it is not there. That based on our upbringing, based on our experience, based on whether we've been racially profiled or not, based on whether we've had a history of being discriminated minorities or not, that whites often don't see racism when it really is there. They don't recognize it. And conversely, blacks often do not see racism, excuse me, blacks often see racism when it's not there. And look, as a Jew, I could say the same thing, that non-Jews often don't see anti-Semitism when it is there, and Jews often see anti-Semitism when it's not there. It's perfectly understandable. But unless you're going to tell me that all of the Jesus-loving whites vote a certain way, and, or, or the great majority of Jesus-loving whites vote one way, and the great majority of Jesus-loving blacks vote a different way. And it's because one is right with God and the other is not right with God. One is serving God, one is not serving God. Unless you're going to throw out something like that to me, which strikes me as utterly racist, then we have to find out why. Why do we have these different perspectives? Why do we have these different positions? And what I want to know is, what are my blind spots? So I double check those, just like you're driving. If you have a blind spot, you double check that before you move forward. So I have no desire whatsoever to show the left or the woke crowd 
Look at how enlightened I am. Look at how racially sensitive I am. No, it's the last thought on my mind. At the same time, I want to be able to speak to issues with my brothers and sisters in the Lord from different races and ethnicities and backgrounds. I want to be able to speak with them candidly, have difficult conversations, and learn from one another and sharpen one another so that we can serve God together. That's my goal. It's a lot easier just bash from one side, and then the more people yell at you, say, yeah, that just proves how right I am. What I want to do is, is the Jesus thing, which is to come into a difficult situation as brothers and sisters in the Lord and have an honest conversation. We're going to play a few clips from the hearings when we come back. A, a ton of stuff to get into today. But we're going to do that, and I want to take your calls. Do you believe that Judge Jackson was mistreated, disrespected, because of her skin color, because of her gender? 866-348-7884. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. I'm just posting on my personal Facebook page. We'll do it on the Ask Director Brown page after the show. I'm just posting a copy of the tweet that got me blocked on Twitter. Yeah. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. I am not here to stir up controversy. Controversy exists. I'm here to help us address controversy as brothers and sisters in Jesus with mutual respect and saying, okay, I understand you love the Lord. I understand you're trying to be biblically based and you see things this way. I understand you love the Lord. You're seeking to be biblically based. You think, see things a different way. Let's talk about it. I'm going to go to the phones shortly. First, this is what Cory Booker said, Senator Cory Booker, to Judge Jackson in the midst of the hearings. Let's listen. This has been uh, not a surprise, given the history that we all know, not a surprise, but... Uh, perhaps a little bit of a disappointment, uh, some of the things that have been said in, in this hearing. Uh, the way you have dealt with some of these things, um, that's why you are a judge and I am a politician, because you have sat with grit and grace and have shown us uh, just extraordinary uh, demeanor. But you are a, a mainstream judge. Your sentencing, I've looked at the data, falls in the mainstream on everything from child sexual assault to all the other issues that people are trying to bring up. And, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying, nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not going to let my joy be stolen. And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the to the highest court in the land, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. So my question is, if she was a mainstream judge, why would she be nominated by a leftist uh, administration and by Joe Biden? In other words, we knew that Trump's appointees had a certain judicial philosophy and it would be leaning to the right, broadly speaking. And we know that those that President Biden would nominate would be leaning to the left. It's, it's a given. 
we know it. And we know then how votes go for the most part afterwards. What I find troubling there is the way Senator Booker treated some of the Trump nominees. And now to say it's disappointing. I, it goes both ways. That's the thing. To me, it's, it's gone both ways throughout. And it's got nothing to do with skin color. And it's got nothing to do with gender. But that's my, that's my perception. It has everything to do with ideology. And that's where you're getting the attacks on each side. That's my perception. Eager to interact with those that may have a different perception. All right, let's, uh, let's listen to Lindsey Graham and some of his interaction. This was uh, obviously more feisty. Uh, in your nomination, did you notice that people from the left were pretty much cheering you on? A lot of people were cheering me on, That's Senator. True. That's true. So I have a methodology that I use in my cases in order to ensure that I am uh, ruling impartially and that so your judicial philosophy is to rule impartially. No, my judicial philosophy is to rule impartially and to rule consistent with the limitations on my authority as a judge. And so my methodology actually helps me to do that in every case. So you wouldn't say that you're an activist judge? I would not say that. Okay. <clears throat> so we'll have a 20 minutes more later on, but here's what I would say. That every group that wants to pack the court, that believes this court is a bunch of right-wing nuts that are going to destroy America, that consider the Constitution trash, all wanted you picked. And this is all I can say, is the fact that so many of these left-wing radical groups that would destroy the law as we know it, declared war on Michelle Childs and supported you, is problematic for me. Thank you. Now, he's referencing someone in the past who was a black female, and those on the left opposed her. So to me, the issues are ideology. That's what it comes down to. And in my view, there was disrespect towards Trump's nominees, and there's disrespect towards Biden's nominees, and there's fair questioning for them as well. It's just, this is what I expect politically. To me, it's unrelated to race. Others have a different perspective, but... If we don't talk about it, then we'll pass like ships in the night. Right, let's uh, go to the phones. We'll start in Raleigh, North Carolina. Clay, welcome to the line of fire. We're well, a long time no talk to Brother Michael, Dr. Brother Michael. Um, it's been a long time since I've been able to call in and share anything with you and be able to talk to you. But I was going to talk, I was going to touch on it. First of all, let me give you a heartfelt thanks for being part of the Truth Network. Uh, it's interesting that you bring certain things out, and sometimes it's not easy for people to digest. I would say that I get digestively fed when I hear certain things. But if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was about two, maybe three years ago, around that time, that you brought this wonderful, godly black preacher in from Winston-Salem area. And I, if I'm not mistaken, he broke it down. He opened his Bible, and he talked about what you had shared just a little bit ago about the racism thing or the racist thing more. I think he talked on the racism thing and what he shared really has gotten my attention because I've been able to share this with so many people um, throughout. And I, I, I will brag on you because I'm thankful that you do what you do. And Lord, thank you for brother, Dr. Brother Michael uh, for what he does on truth radio. Um, but anyway, I remember when he cracked up in his Bible and he went through scripture 
and he brought out the exact fact that there is no such word as racism in the Bible. Do you remember that? Oh, oh okay. I, I think I know who you're, you're speaking about. There are a couple of conversations like this. The, the issue that, that he was raising, and, and, and thanks, thanks for, the, for the kind words. I appreciate it. The, the issue that he was raising was that in the Bible, you have division over nationality, or you have division over Jew-Gentile, as opposed to division over skin color. And that that is something that is a more recent invention. In fact, my, my colleague on the stream, John Zmirak, a Catholic conservative, wrote an article recently, and in the midst of it, uh, he, is, he is white. In the midst of it, he talked about where American slave trade went beyond slave trade in the past, and that in America, it became an issue of race. In, in other words, when the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, they, they would have looked pretty similar to the Egyptians, by and large. So they were enslaved as a foreign people, worshiping a different god, but not because of skin color. And when the Romans enslaved different groups, it was they, they conquered them, and it wasn't because of skin color. Uh, and blacks have enslaved whites, and whites have enslaved blacks, and blacks have enslaved blacks, and whites have enslaved whites, and other races have enslaved other races. But in America, a, a theology was developed that blacks were of an inferior race, and therefore they, they were destined to serve, or they were cursed, and therefore to serve, or they were morally or intellectually inferior, and therefore they should serve. And that's what gave it some of its unique evil. But the concept of racism does, does not specifically uh, exist in the Bible. So, uh, Clay, what, what was it that you found helpful about that observation? It's because of how he, how he brought it out and how he um, introduced it. Um, because of, I mean, you know, just to, just to know, and I mean, I, I, I liked what he, <laughs> the pastor had to say, because uh, I'm, I'm actually believing that for the rest of the show that, you know, there weren't too many people to call in and talk about this because, you know, he's, he, he, I, and you know what, I come from two families that had nothing to do with, you know, the, the racism thing or the racist thing. Uh, there was a lady, um, her name was Matios. He took care of my sister and I when we were younger, and she was not a slave or she was not in anything. And I know that some people probably went into something like that because of what was going on with them and their lifestyle. But, you know, they were compensated for what they did. There's so much, I, I, I think, confusion and not much comprehension on what, what, what went on years and years and years ago. Yeah, let, let me, yeah. Let me just jump in because I've got a I've got a break coming up. Let, let Let me say this. Let me say this. Perception is not always reality. Many times, what we perceive is not accurate. We misjudge things. We misunderstand things. Perception is not always reality, but perception must be addressed if we are to help people come into reality. If I have a massive blind spot because of my upbringing or history that does not enable me to see something else or to have empathy for someone else, that's what I perceive. I don't see a problem. I see no issue. However, there is an issue. There is a problem. So you have to deal with my false perception 
to get me into reality. The same way, if I'm convinced there is an issue or problem where actually there isn't one, tell me to see that that perception must be dealt with. So, so friends, here's my appeal. And thanks for the, the call, Clay. When it comes to issues that become racially divisive, especially in our churches, don't talk past each other. Don't demonize each other. Don't sit back and judge each other superficially. Instead, talk to each other following these guidelines. Ask the other person, the other brother or sister, the other coworker, the other family member. Please share your thoughts on this. I, I want to hear your take. Listen as carefully as you can. Take it in. And then ask if you can share your take. This way, friends, we can grow in the Lord, grow in our understanding, and grow in our unity before a divided world. Is that fair? Be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. So what are your plans for April 14th? Say what? April 14th. Well, scrambling to get tax stuff. No, no, no. I'm talking about not ashamed of Jesus Day. National Not Ashamed of Jesus Day. Have you not heard? Go to notashamedofjesus.org. Notashamedofjesus.org. There's a special section for pastors and leaders, stuff you can download, general information for everyone. This is a day where we say to a world, to a culture, that is trying to silence us, that is trying to shut our mouths, that is trying to marginalize us, that is trying to cancel us. This is our time to say we're here. We're not ashamed. We love Jesus. We love you. It's a day to bring your Bible to work or school. It's a day to wear a shirt or an outfit identifying you as a follower of Jesus. It's a day to post something on social media. It's a, it's a day to look for an opportunity to share the love of God with someone. And as we rise up together, we'll be amazed at how many there are. Wow, in our class, in the workplace, in our neighborhood. Wow, I didn't know about that. And we'll be amazed how many doors open for us to share the gospel. And we'll be amazed that some people don't like us. Ooh, but that's fine. We follow in the footsteps of our Master and Savior, Jesus. 866-34-TRUTH. I want to play a clip from Senator Ted Cruz interacting with Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson in the Supreme Court hearings last week. And then after that, I'm going to move on. But I, I want to play this and give you a couple of different perspectives on it. All right. So this is some of senators uh, asking questions, Senator Cruz asking Judge Jackson these questions. Let's listen. If you look at the Georgetown Day Schools curriculum, it is filled and overflowing with critical race theory. That, that among the, doc, the books that are either assigned or recommended, uh, they include critical race theory, an introduction. Uh, they include the end of policing and ad, an advocacy for abolishing police. They include how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi. They include literally stacks and stacks of books, and I'll tell you two of the ones that were most stunning. They include a book called Anti-Racist Baby uh, by I Ibram Kendi. And there are portions of this book 
that, that, that I find really quite remarkable. One portion of the book says babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There is no neutrality. Another portion of the book, they recommend to babies confess when being racist. I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. But what I will say is that when you asked me whether or not this was taught in schools, critical race theory, my understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools. And to the extent that you were asking the question, I understood you to be addressing public schools. Georgetown Day School, just like the religious school that Justice Barrett was on the board of, is a private school. In my work as a judge, which is evidenced from my near decade on the bench, Okay, good. I am then, then let's go back to, to your work as a judge. Um, as was noted in the first slide, you discuss sentencing as being related to critical race theory. And earlier there's been some back and forth as Democratic senators have tried to address your sentencing patterns as it concerns child pornography. And I'll confess, Judge Jackson, as, as, look, as I listen to your testimony, I believe you are someone who is compassionate. I believe you care for children, obviously your children and other children. But I also see a record of activism and advocacy. All right. Now, this is just excerpts of, of the interaction. Here's why I played it. One of my friends, very solid, strong believer, well-educated, deep thinker, black American believer saw this and, and thought what Cruz did was horrible and ridiculous and idiotic with CRT and showing children stuff. I watched it, thought he was respectful as, as I watched the, the clips afterwards, didn't watch live, that he was respectful and that those were perfectly fair questions to raise. And when she said on the school board, we didn't discuss curriculum, that could well be. You have a school board that comes together to look at larger financial issues or, or school growth or things like that or... They don't look at curriculum. Perfectly fair. When she said CRT is taught in grad schools or law schools, yes, that actual philosophy or that way of thinking and evaluating history and society, that would be taught as an academic subject. No one that I know that's opposing this is saying it's being taught to kindergartners or even sixth graders. What they're saying is that there is a curricula which is filtered through the lens of CRT. And once more, we're like ships passing in the night. So all, all I'm hoping for is for us as followers of Jesus, not expecting the world to do this, but us as followers of Jesus, to be able to, to each hear each other out, think through what other sides, other parts of the body are saying, and then come to our own clear convictions. Maybe the more you interact with someone, the deeper your conviction gets. The more you talk to them, it's like, well, you are blind. Boy, am I right in the way I see things. Or you may think, wow, I never saw it from that angle. 
That is so, so helpful. And perspectives change based on that, or convictions deepen. So can we do this? Can we do this? We'll, we'll see what happens in the comments section on Facebook and YouTube and other places where people weigh in. Can we sharpen one another in the Lord rather than grind each other down? Is that possible? Can we sharpen one another in the Lord rather than stab each other or grind each other down? That's what I'm here to do. Now, along the way, I will, I get, I will get stabbed. Oh, trust me, the knives come out. But I don't mind that. I don't mind that. That's what happens on the front lines. That, that's fine. If, if I can take some stabbing, spiritually, metaphorically speaking, that will help others listen and interact and dialogue with respect, I'm in. Worth it. Not a problem. Okay. So the state of Utah, switching subjects now, the state of Utah passed a bill saying that biological boys cannot compete against biological girls in sports. The governor vetoed it. The legislature overruled the governor. So it's now law in Utah. Thank God. It's a good law. It's a right law. It's a righteous law. It's a fair law. So uh, the Utah Jazz basketball team, their management put out a statement opposing the law. So I tweeted this. And guys, maybe we can pull up this uh, graphic here. I tweeted this last night, an honest question for the Utah Jazz management. Now that you've come out with a statement opposing your state's passage of a bill outlawing biological males from competing with girls, if a member of your team identified as female, could he play in the WNBA? Uh, so someone said that's a good, fair question, Jazz, would say in response. And then a gentleman named Ben Anderson, who is a journalist who covers Utah Jazz and has a, a radio show as well, which I learned by clicking on his link. He said, why do you think this is some gotcha moment? These are already elite athletes competing at the highest level. If one decided to walk away from that because they wanted to feel like they were more accurately represented to their true self, why would you be mad at that? And then another tweet, can you imagine how much courage it would take to walk away from millions of dollars in fame for the relatively minuscule salaries and anonymity of the WNBA because you're being true to yourself? What are you talking about? And I, I said, thanks for your response, but the question is about fairness to female athletes which is why athletes like Martina Navratilova were not happy with, quote, Leah Thomas NCAA victories. So would it be fair to women in the WNBA for a male NBA player to compete against them? So my only issue was fairness to female players. And obviously, any player, the worst male player in the NBA is one of the top basketball players in the world, is an elite basketball athlete. To, to be playing in the NBA. That player, the worst male, would be the number one star in the history of women's basketball because that person is a biological male and has had all his life to develop as a biological male. So even if he did things with various hormone treatments to lessen some of his masculinity, the fact is he's lived his whole life, developed bone structure, all kinds of things, muscle, athleticism, these are things that have been developed that are not going to be removed. It's self-evident. That's why Wilt slash Leah Thomas went from being ranked 462 among male swimmers to, to win the 500-yard freestyle in the NCAA national competition and win it handily from 462 down this race, number one. Because Wilt Thomas is still a male. So anyway, I went back and forth with Ben Anderson. One point he you know, said, why are you insulting people by calling them 
he when it's actually she and it was somewhat condescending. I said, it's odd that you're lecturing me about tone when you're being insulting to me. But we went back and forth. I said, biology is not bigotry. I said, what's your view? He posted his view saying, hey, that's up to the person. The WNBA is, is fully qualified to make that decision, but it's up to the person to determine their, their true identity. And I strongly differed. And that was it. So uh, today, late morning, I go to get on Twitter and I find out I'm, I'm banned. Uh, I'm blocked. My account hasn't been deleted, but I'm blocked. It doesn't tell me why. So finally, about one minute before radio was going to start, it reveals the reason why. So your account has been locked. What happened? We've determined that this account violated the Twitter rules. So this is the tweet. Now, what I did is I deleted it because I don't really care about having it up right now. It's not a big deal. I deleted it to open my account again, but I took a screenshot of it and said, by the way, this is why this is why I, my account was blocked. But we'll see what happens now. And of course, I'll write an article about it and post that on Twitter. But this is what I wrote that got me locked out on Twitter. Are you ready? Thanks for your response. This is to, to this gentleman that I was interacting with. Thanks for your response. But the question is about fairness to female athletes, which is why athletes like Martina Navratilova were not happy with, quote, Leah Thomas's NCAA victories. So would it be fair to women in the WNBA for a male NBA player to compete against them? That's it. I, I read it before. That's the one I got locked out for. That's how crazy it is. Now, my guess is that somebody complained about it. Maybe the fellow I was interacting with, maybe some others complained about it. But for that, you, there's a reason we've been shouting. There's a reason we've been raising our voices from the rooftops. There's a reason I've written the book, The Silencing of the Lambs. This is real, friends. There's a reason there's a whole chapter in the book about big tech. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. I've been pleased to see as more and more word has been getting out about the silencing of the lambs that, that people are picking up a copy of the book. And I tell you, it's, it's an eye-opener. I've mentioned this before. But because I'm always working on new books, working on new projects, writing five new articles a week, by the time a book comes out, it, it, unless it's a rush thing where it's an, a critical thing we have to get out right now and publishers work with it, and I write it quickly, we get it out quickly. Normally, by the time I finish the manuscript and submit it to the publisher so it's clean, it's as edited as sharply as I can edit it, all the annotation is there, all the end notes are there. So I submit it to the publisher then it's only nine to 12 months before the book will come out. There's their editing proofing process. There's the cover design. There are other things to be thought through and then it has to get its slot with bookstores and things, you know, when they're expecting new books from publishers, etc. So by the time the books come out, I've probably written two new books and hundreds of articles and done countless radio shows, preaching, ministering. So, the book itself is not always foremost in my mind at that moment. And what I'll do is I'll review the contents. I may speed read it. What I've been doing in more recent years is I'll get the audiobook, actually buy the audiobook of my own book and, and listen to it. And now I'm hearing it afresh. Someone else is reading it and I'm being refreshed again. When it comes to the silencing of the lambs, the content has been with me pretty much always 
through this last year, through the editing, proofing, publishing preparation process, because it's so massively relevant. And I was able to update things as we got closer to releasing the book. It is so massively relevant. This is the world we live in every single day. So, of course, it's on my mind. But hearing it on the audiobook, I'm oh, jarred afresh as I'm, because there's so many examples. There's so many anecdotes. There's so many stories that as I'm hearing it afresh, one after the other, I'm getting impacted the way you'd be impacted as a reader. And you will be challenged. I just want you to know, when you get the silencing of the lambs, you will be challenged. Pastors, leaders, you will be challenged. Moms, dads, young people, you will be challenged. People in the business world, people working in the media, you will be challenged. What's the challenge? Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you'll find it. What that means, practically speaking, is if I compromise my convictions for the sake of my colleagues, if I, I soften my message so as not to rock the boat, if I, I, I modify the things that are most important to me because I want to stay popular or I want to make more money, I want to grow my social media network. I have sold my soul on a certain level in the process. And the ultimate selling of our soul is when we're told to deny Jesus and walk away from our faith, we do it to save our lives and thereby lose our lives. You are now a slave to others. You no longer have personal dignity and integrity. Instead, you are now a puppet of the polls or a puppet of finances or a, a puppet of human opinion a puppet of social media praise, whatever it is. When you lose your life, when you say, I live to do the will of God, I'm not a troublemaker, I'm a peacemaker, I'm not some arrogant, angry, thug-type person, I'm humble and want to serve and honor, but I have to be true to my convictions. And if being true to my convictions means I lose this promotion, if being true to my convictions means I'm, I'm ousted from a certain position, if being true to my convictions mean I end up in jail, if being true to my convictions means I die, so be it. We live to do the will of God. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Is not that what Paul said? And didn't he say in the verse immediately before that, writing from a jail in Philippi, for I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Messiah will be magnified in my body. Christ will be magnified in my body. For to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Isn't that the context of his words? Didn't Jesus say in John 12, 24 and 25, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Therefore, we must renounce our lives, meaning our right to self-determination. Die to that and say, Lord, I'm here to do your will. And Friends, I've, I've done that the better part of these last 50 years. Not perfectly, but that's been my heart. And, and boy, it's so freeing. It is so wonderfully freeing. Because now your, your primary focus is what pleases the Lord. I was doing an interview with my, my good friend, Dr. Frank Turek, who we are going to have on the air soon to talk about an amazing book that he and his son wrote. I think maybe early May is when the show will, will air. And we'll be doing that interview soon. But I was on his show this past Saturday talking about the silence of the lambs. And I, I have to get the exact quote because I had not heard it before, but it was, it was so right on. Thomas Sowell said, and I, I, this may be a paraphrase, 
when you tell people the truth, you care about them or you're trying to help them. When you tell people what they want to hear, you care about yourself. You're trying to help yourself. And, and when you think of it like that, okay, speaking the truth in love is going to help that person. Tell them what they want to hear is going to hurt them. Tell them what they want to hear is going to temporarily help me, but ultimately hurt them. It changes our thought process. So grab a bunch of copies, if you're able, of The Silencing of the Lambs, wherever you get your books, your local bookstore, online, Christian Book, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, on our website, AskDrBrown.org. Grab some copies, distribute them widely. The last chapter gets into more depth about National Not Ashamed of Jesus Day on April 14th. And again, Esther 414, the key verse there, which is a real save your life, lose it, lose your life, find it kind of verse. Esther 414. Okay, one last thing. Let's listen to President Biden's comments over the weekend in Poland, wanted to sound strong, push back against Vladimir Putin, and made one unscripted comment that they've now, the White House and President Biden have had to walk back from, but created quite a bit of controversy. And then I'll tell you why I'm playing it. Let's, let's listen. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never erase a people's love for liberty. Brutality will never grind down their will to be free. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. All right, so that's the line, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Now, I'm sure America has been engaged in clandestine operations before and removed different government leaders. And I'm sure other nations have been involved with that as well. That doesn't surprise me. What surprises me and surprised everyone was to publicly say it. He must be removed. He can't stay in office. You say, well, Dr. Brown, you always say that you're not here to attack the president. You're not here to attack President Biden, etc." That's true. So why am I playing it? simply this. Many were concerned about Donald Trump as president, that his speech would be reckless and that his recklessness would lead to potentially a world war. And there was some validity to that concern. I have, I have a concern about President Biden, a different kind of recklessness and his mental acuity at, at this stage in life. And I, I, don't get, I don't get it with 330 million Americans, and with thousands of political candidates and scores of high-level political candidates that our only choice in the end was between two men who had enough baggage that we would question whether they could be the best for America. So having voted for Donald Trump twice, I'm hoping he will not run again in 2024. And certainly I can't imagine President Biden in what seems to be an ongoing declining state possibly thinking of, of running in 2024. And we don't know that any of us, we can't boast about any of our own lives, let alone these two older men about who'll be here in 2024. At the same time, 
we have even more grave concerns about the leadership qualities of, of Vice President Kamala Harris, which is why she dropped out early in the primaries, had so little support. So it, it's a very difficult situation. But to me, it's simple. Pray for God's best for President Biden. Uh, he obviously is in mental decline. He obviously, and as many are at that age, some are not. Some are going strong in their 90s. Some are fading in their 60s. But I'm, I'm praying, God, you're best for President Biden. I'm not praying for his demise. I'm not praying curses on him. He is our president. I didn't vote for him. This is the way our system works. He is our president. Even if you think the election was stolen, the courts never overturned it. The Senate, the Senate ratified it. So he's, he's my president. Therefore, I pray, God, you're best for President Biden. Help him to do what is right and good. Help him to do what is right and good for America and the nations. God, guide his decision-making process and bring people around him that can help him do the right thing. And Lord, protect us as a nation and protect the world from things that could be the result of reckless speech. That's my prayer. God, don't hurt him. Help him to be the best president he could be for the good of America and the nations. Because Sparks Fly, friends, there could be a lot of lives lost. That's my prayer. Not against him. For him. Talk to you tomorrow. Another program powered by the Truth Network.